Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. We're going to have two podcasts today with our guest, Dr. Cheryl Healton, who is the founding president and CEO of the American Legacy Foundation, headquartered in Washington, D.C. Dr. Healton has a background in public health and has been on the faculty of the Columbia University School of Public Health for many years. There she has served as um, chair of a department and also associate dean of the medical school and has a long history of doing interesting scientific and advocacy work in areas related to health, particularly smoking. Uh, she's one of the true heroes and in her position of uh, director of the CEO of the American Legacy Foundation has done pioneering work on a variety of areas related to tobacco. So welcome, Cheryl. Very nice to have you here. Well, Kelly, it's great to be here. So let's talk about, um, let's put tobacco in context. Now, it's my impression, not being a tobacco expert, that tremendous public health victories have been achieved in that area over the past decades. Um, could you give us some numbers on what's happened with tobacco rates, smoking rates over the years? Well, you're right. There, there it has been a fabulous victory, public health victory, uh, the t- war against uh, tobacco use in America. Um, well, I think one of the most interesting statistics is right now today in America, about 47 million former smokers live in the country and 46 million current smokers. Mm. So that's a huge figure to think that there are currently 46 million adult Americans still smoking. <clears throat> but when you consider the fact that in 1965, say, the rates of smoking among adults in the U.S. were about 34% for women and over 40% for men, um, that the epidemic has been cut almost completely in half among adults um, over the period 1964 to the present. And the result has been that the number of deaths per year related to tobacco um, um, per 100,000 population have also plummeted. It's been a long battle. The battle is not won by any means. Uh, Tobacco remains, by all accounts, the leading cause of preventable death uh, in the U.S. And as I understand, the rates of smoking are deplorable in some of the developing countries and other parts of the world. Yes, sadly, um, you could argue that our gains are their losses. To a substantial extent, the ever-expanding market for the major tobacco companies and for your smaller startup tobacco companies, uh, there's a readily available new market that can be created throughout the world and is being created. The basic trend is that smoking rates in Western Europe the U.S. and Canada are falling, whereas rates in um, the developed nations and poor countries around the world are on the rise. I heard an alarming statistic some years ago, and I'm not sure if it still applies, but it was a statistic about how many new smokers the tobacco industry has to recruit every day just to stay even to replace the people who are dying from diseases caused by tobacco. Well, in the U.S., that would be 1,200 a day, and what they're getting is about 3,000 new smokers among young people every day still in the U.S., which is down from about 4,000. Well, those are just alarming numbers. They're huge. But but nonetheless, let's talk about the victories. So the fact that the tobacco rates have been cut in half is really stunning, and I know those were hard-won victories. It took a very long time, as you said. Um, talk, if you would, about some of the landmark events and what, what are some of the things that have helped contribute to that overall decline? Well, there are many things that have contributed. I think the sentinel event was the Surgeon General's report in 1964 on tobacco. 
uh, which was the first time there was a Surgeon General's report on uh, smoking and health, and that was the name of the report. Um, it basically called out tobacco as a um, leading cause of um, death in America and nicotine addiction as a serious problem. And it produced um, a terrified reaction in the tobacco industry because it was the first time really that the federal government in a very strong way threw down the gauntlet. Um, after that, the big sentinel events were in my view, the national public education campaign that the Fairness Doctrine, which no longer exists but at one time required um, the equal time if a corporation was selling a product that was not in the public interest. And that the, the, the Fairness Doctrine was really about political candidacy. It was extended to tobacco. And this and was in the 1970s. This right? was in the late 60s and early 70s, 1968 through 71. And there were very, very steep declines in smoking that occurred when this, this mass media campaign was running on the air. And many people believe that campaign contributed to the tobacco industry cutting a deal to take their ads off of radio and TV. That was another sentinel event because at that time there was no Internet. Um, obviously magazines mattered, but not being able to be on radio and TV was a big event. Sadly, however, um, those big declines uh, were lost, uh, the ones that accumulated during that special three-year period when the advertising was almost one-to-one, not quite the next big event, um, I think, probably unquestionably, was the fact that about 35 years ago, a small group of people in California decided that tobacco really was something uh, that should be dealt with and dealt with very aggressively. And California, by all accounts, and I don't think anyone in public health could, could disagree with this statement, became the quintessential model state for aggressively attacking the tobacco problem. And they did it um, many, many ways, but one of the key elements was they denormalized the use, the use of tobacco, which in and of itself is a somewhat complicated concept that's worthy of some discussion. Um, but their process of denormalizing smoking also denormalized smokers. And this is, of course, in public health is a controversial topic. Do you point the finger at the individual who is engaging in the behavior or those things that conspire to lead them to uh, you know, become trapped in a pattern of behavior. California really did all that. They ran a series of very aggressive public education campaigns that were very anti-tobacco industry and were very successful in totally reframing the way the average Californian viewed the tobacco industry. The result of that is the, the public was comfortable with a very high price tag on cigarettes. Um, California was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, state to go smoke-free. It was, I believe, the first state to declare its beaches smoke-free. So it's been on the vanguard of policy changes that change behavior, and those big ones are um, not allowing smoking in places where the smoke can harm others. I mean, largely that's inside, but now that is even moving to outside semi-enclosed spaces like the beach, the parks, et cetera. Price, which is extremely important, so the higher the, the price. Taxes are extremely important, and public aggressive public education. Um, the United States is good at a lot of things, but frankly, I think we get an F for public health education. So, looking back to the early stages of this, you mentioned a small group of people in California. Now, they were competing with a massively powerful industry. Not that they're not powerful now, but certainly back then they they were. 
And how, how did the small number of people accomplish this? How did, did, did their actions become taxes and become public education campaigns? Why didn't they just get completely overridden by efforts by the tobacco companies? There were a lot of um, elements, and I, I, I'm sure I can't do them all justice, but first of all, they created America, Americans for Non-Smokers' Rights. So they created a right not to be around smoking and promulgated it conceptually. Um, they also um, were a referendum state, and so they had the ability to use the power of the public to change laws, and only a handful of states operate that way. So they could actually you know, have a referendum to allocate massive amounts of money to a public education campaign. And in fact, very recently, just within the last five years or so, the tobacco industry sued California once again to try to block it from having a public education campaign on the grounds that it was compelled speech under the First Amendment, and it was compelled speech because the source of the money for the ad campaign were taxes on tobacco products. Right, so compelled speech is where a company is being forced to say things that may be against their interests. Right, and when you think about it, once your product is taxed, is it really your money anymore? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an ironic and frivolous suit in many respects. They did lose, thank goodness. But that's another sentinel event, California, and unquestionably other states followed suit. Um, the final, I think, you know, big two events that happened were the master settlement agreement where the, uh, 46 states attorneys general uh, were poised, many of them, probably not all, but poised and threatening to sue the tobacco industry independently, individually as states. And that led uh, to a series of negotiations which ultimately culminated under the leadership of Christine Gregoire, who is now the governor of the state of Washington, uh, to a, a mega master agreement that infused states with massive amounts of money, in fact, billions of dollars, that they could use or not use for tobacco control. One of the flaws in that agreement was they had the option to use none of it for tobacco control. But that agreement did create legacy, the American Legacy Foundation, um, with a flow of dollars for over a 10-year period coming through the settlement agreement through the states. Uh, and allowed us to undertake something called the Truth Campaign, which is a national youth public education prevention campaign that has been enormously successful in reducing smoking. The Master Settlement Agreement also um, allowed the attorneys general to uh, to threaten, and they do that frequently, the tobacco industry on a whole variety of activities that they engage in, from putting um, you know chocolate flavoring into cigarettes to internet sales and 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 so on and so forth and then the final huge event was the ultimate success by the passage of Congress of regulation over the tobacco industry by the Food and Drug Administration that battle is a battle that has been ongoing since about 1996 or 97 when uh, David Kessler first uh, attempted as head of the FDA to regulatorily assert authority over the tobacco industry, and the Supreme Court ruled that he could not do so, and the result was only Congress could do that. And that happened a couple of years ago and is now being fairly aggressively implemented. So I'd like to come back in a moment and talk about the the work of the Legacy Foundation in particular. But before I do that, is there a way to characterize the behavior of the tobacco industry over these years? And how they've responded to information that their products are killing people, and 
how how they behave, and I'm, we'll be we'll talk in the second podcast about whether there's similarities in the way other industries behave. But characterize that for us, if you would. Well, the tobacco industry um, has used an enormous amount of cunning and uh, extremely smart maneuvering um, in maximizing their profits. Uh, they they behave like any other major corporation that wants to maximize its profits would behave. Uh, only on steroids would be my description of them. Uh, their first reaction uh, to the Surgeon General's report was they held an emergency meeting in New York and then issued a frank statement, and that's what it was called. And they said if, in fact, it really turns out that cigarettes are, heaven forbid, harmful to human health, we'll take them off the market. That's what that statement said. And that was, I'm certain, written by a very slick ad agency. Um, they, of course, now have been found to be utterly harmful and to result in the death in about 50% of all people who use them during the life cycle. And they're still very much on the market. So their first instinct was a good instinct, but the uh, but it was a, I, I expect, a ruse, really. They have very effectively used the following strategies. Creating junk science while calling legitimate science junk science. That's a center piece. They have co-opted many organizations, women's groups, minority groups, um, um, PTAs, you name it, by making major grants. Um, Political groups, they've made grants to the National Governors Association, to the National Association of State Legislators. And then they make huge political donations. About half of all elected officials in the country take donations from the tobacco industry. Still today. Still today. And so that in and of itself says it all. And in fact, there's one famous story where a member of the House simply walked on the House floor and handed checks from a major tobacco company out to everyone on the floor. And you sort of had to proactively reject the money in order not to take it. So they do that. And then finally, they are exceedingly aggressive with regard to their litigation approach. Uh, They do not want anything to curb their ability to sell their product. Um, and they will pounce on um, anything, whether it's a state, a local, or a national provision. Um, They will also proactively strategize and were quite successful for a while in, in trying to develop preemptive laws at the state level that would make it impossible for a locality to regulate uh, the time and place of purchase of their product. I think that the Zenith, they had about 18 states with preemption laws so that if you were the largest city in a state, you couldn't have a clean indoor air law. You could only get it through the state, and the state was the point where they maximized their control through um, political donations. Boy, the similarities with some of the strategies of the food companies are stunning in this case. But we'll talk about that a little bit more in the second podcast. Could you explain a little bit more about the work of the Legacy Foundation, American Legacy Foundation? And I'd like to talk about the Truth Campaign in particular, if you wouldn't mind. Well, Legacy does many things. Its mission is to create a world where young people reject tobacco and anyone can quit. So it not only embraces the concept of primary prevention, never starting an addiction that is very difficult to quit, and also once one starts to, to try to be successful at quitting. And in order to pursue those twin goals, we have two signature brands. One is the Truth Campaign, which is a youth-to-youth, highly financed, 
relative to other public health campaigns, certainly, um, youth-to-youth message about the the importance of not getting taken in by the tobacco industry. Um, basically, the philosophy of the truth campaign is that many young people start smoking as an act of rebellion and to embrace their concept of adulthood. And what we're hoping to do with the truth campaign is allow them to rebel to channel that natural rebellion into a rejection of an industry that's out to dupe them and uh, cause them ill health in the end. And it's turned out to be very powerful and very successful. Now, I know um, a number of people have seen these seen these ads because they've been so widely run, but could you describe one or two and give the listeners a sense of the tenor of these things? I'd be happy to. We've, we've, we've executed literally thousands of, of print, radio, and TV ads. The first uh, major ad... Uh, we piled up 1,200 body bags around Philip Morris's downtown headquarters in Manhattan and um, you know, had a very t- tight script and aerial view, and there were two th- spots, a 30- and a 60-second spot. We did about eight ads in the first flight of films. That was one of them. Another one was called Lie Detector, in which a young woman walks into Philip Morris's uh, downtown headquarters in New York City with a lie detector and asks to speak to the head of the marketing department because Philip Morris says nicotine is addictive and it says it isn't addictive and we want to find out is it or isn't it. Um, so that's the type of ad. It's edgy. It's sarcastic. It's um, it's youthful. It's proactive. It's um, skeptical. Um, it's it discloses a lot of distasteful information. We use a lot of potty humor. Uh, kids love potty humor. We we ended up in long term litigation with the tobacco industry ostensibly, I think this was the stalking horse, but ostensibly over a radio ad which talked about the presence of urea in cigarettes, something that also is in dog pee. And someone was making a call to a tobacco company offering to sell a variety of dog pee to Mm. the company. And said company was unhappy uh, with that ad, exceedingly unhappy with that ad. And that was the tipping point for them. And we ended up in five and a half years of litigation. So the ads um, have resulted in um, about 22% of the overall decline that has occurred in youth smoking is attributable to the Truth Campaign. Amazing. The remaining 78% is attributable to all the other things we've discussed here, price increases, clean indoor air laws, the general buzz in the society that this is really not a healthy thing to do. Um, so that that's really been that part of the legacy story. Legacy also has made grants for many years, though uh, we do much less of that now post the recession, and because the amount of money that Legacy has to spend is markedly less than it was in the, its early years. And then finally, we do a lot of work in the policy arena. Uh, we can't lobby, uh, but we do work very closely on regulatory issues related to the Food and Drug Administration and its current uh, control over um, or attempt to control the tobacco industry. We are very involved in the issue of menthol not being banned when all other flavorings were banned in tobacco. We are going to be very involved in the question of what the nicotine level uh, can be in cigarettes because the law allows it to be lowered to um, non-addicting levels, which is a great, it's in my view, the greatest opportunity of the FDA bill is the ability to do that because in the past when cigarettes were produced with negligible levels of nicotine, no one wanted to smoke them. So interesting. Well, what a, what a victory the Truth Campaign has been. 
Um, you, you could have chosen many different approaches to this campaign. You could have talked about the health consequences of smoking and how it would kill you later on. Uh, you could have talked about the, made the, the cigarettes be the, the enemy here rather than the companies. Why did you choose a particular approach you did? Well, there are many reasons, but there had been a lot of consumer research done um, many years prior, and a, a cons- direct consumer research uh, done by TRU, Teen Research Unlimited, um, under contract with Columbia University and the CDC. And there had been a lot of interaction with people who lead youth brand efforts in entirely different fields, music, clothing, et cetera. And the sense was that those things that motivate young people to start smoking um, needed to be counteracted and that longer-term health effects for adolescents were much less compelling than um, being duped, that someone was trying to suck them in, that someone was trying to make money on their backs, that someone was trying to entice them to get involved in something that uh, that they were actually treating them as if they were dumb consumers. All they had to do is show a guy um, getting all the girls, and the next thing you know, um, the person's smoking a pack a day. I mean, that really annoyed them. And, and, and also the, the, the fact that the product kills as many people as, is, as it kills. It, tobacco kills nearly half a million Americans every year. And the way that pans out is the vast majority of young people have had a family member die of tobacco-related causes. And so they really can connect, and they're very naturally altruistic. And they don't like the fact that an industry is responsible for this much death and disability around them. They're much more focused on the fact that their aunt is in the next room dying of end-stage lung cancer than that they themselves might die of end-stage lung cancer. So we've brought a lot of graphic health effects in intermingled with what with with the anti-industry message. And the, you know the industry is very angry about that. They don't want it to uh, they don't want anybody to have an anti-industry message. But we have found that an anti-industry message is vir- virtually the equivalent of an inoculation. It's like a vaccine against becoming a smoker. Well, congratulations for accomplishing so much. And it's very interesting to think about how all this might apply to the area that we're working in, the food and nutrition and obesity field, which is exactly what we'll talk about in the next podcast. So thank you very much for joining us on this. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So our guest today was Dr. Cheryl Healton, president, founding president and CEO of the American Legacy Foundation and pioneer on anti-tobacco efforts around the country and the world. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find there a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter, uh, updates on breaking news in the food policy arena, and, of course, other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent guests who have come to the Rudd Center. Thank you.